0: We reject the ideology of globalism, and we embrace the doctrine of patriotism. Not only will this tax plan pay for itself, but it will pay down debt. There are moral and legal obligation questions that I think we'll have to wrestle with as a society. When
1: we as people go wobbly on the truth, we go wobbly on America.
0: All you have to do is look at the numbers, look at what we've done. And this is only the beginning.
1: Yes, indeed. Welcome to Evidence of Design. I'm 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. My name is Jason Taylor, host of Evidence of Design, and our usual co-hosts Matt Treadwell and Mary Lawrence are behind the scenes for today's episode. For those new to Evidence of Design, we primarily critique Income and wealth inequality. We think there is too much economic inequality in today's society. We investigate its causes, critique its effects, and advocate for policies and practices that could make our society more economically just. We also, on Evidence of Design, promote democratic values. And that is why today I'm very excited to bring to you an interview with Dr. Kevin Maywison, an associate professor from the University of Rochester's Warner School of Education. We're going to talk today about civic engagement. What is it? What are some productive ways that folks can participate in politics? And is all participation in politics good? Or is some participation perhaps, can that be destructive. We'll also take a lens and look at the youth angle. How are youth learning what it means to be political in a political society? Don't miss the interview. We're not going to waste any more time and turn to it right now on 100.9 FM, WXIR in Rochester. Thanks for being here. In the pantheon of the English language, the phrase civic engagement doesn't win awards for being the most exciting. Despite literally being about engagement, there's not many things that might be, well, less engaging sounding. What's invoked are cold marble statues of long dead Greek men, idols to the founders of civics to which Western civilization is happy to pay homage in words more than deeds. But perhaps beauty is in the eye of the beholder not beholden to an object itself. Maybe what rescues civic engagement from this pessimistic purgatory is not a corporate rebranding or linguistic wordsmithing, but a re-realization that civic engagement means more than tax bills, voter IDs, and don't tread on me flags. Civic engagement is also about participating in, defining what society is and what it means to live in, said society. It's about building the complex web of connections and articulations of power that come to manifest as our reality. If this sounds complex, I'll try to boil it down, I guess, to the rudest element. I'm trying to say that both your actions and inactions have power, and in complex alchemical ways, all of our actions and inactions come to define our society. We're here to talk about civic engagement, to dust off those old cold statues, and most importantly, perhaps build some new ones along the way. Joining us in this endeavor is Kevin Maywison, an associate professor and coordinator of the Social Studies Education Program at the University of Rochester's Warner School of Education. In 2018 and 2019, he conducted research on teenagers' political thinking in two regional school districts, interviewing young adults about their understandings of political identity, ideology, and ethics, and co-teaching a unit to senior level government students on the extent to which American citizens are rational, tolerant, and open-minded about politics. Kevin, welcome to Evidence of Design.
0: Thanks for having me. I I, uh, really appreciate being here.
1: Kevin, before we get into the meetup stuff, I wanted to ask: in your bio, you wrote about what you did in 2018 and 19. Should I even ask you what you did this year?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, A lot of Zoom calls this year. Yeah, things changed dramatically uh, around the March uh, March 2020 period, and for everybody, you know. And and of course, we've all been living through unusual, unprecedented times since then. So, trying to make sense of that data. Uh, relative to what was happening in our political climate was, was pretty fascinating. You know, 2018 and 2019 politically is like 15 years ago, right? I think one of the things that's kind of interesting is that in 2018 and 2019, with the teenagers that I was working with, we were talking about issues like, for example, immigration policy and the ethics associated with putting kids in cages and uh, gun control policy, and so on and so forth. Never once did the conversation about what happens when a significant portion of the American population and its leadership decides not to treat an election as if it has any legitimacy. Like, never once did we have that conversation because, you know, in 2018 and 2019, that was still very hypothetical, right? And so, and here we are, right? And in, in December of 2020, I'm living through, you know, the the political uh, circumstances of our time. So I, I guess buckle up and and hang on. It's You, you, you just kind of don't know what you're going to get sometimes.
1: Times, they are a change in. I, I want to start by going back to uh, a previous show. We covered uh, a couple weeks ago a report by the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. It was called Our Common Purpose, Reinventing American Democracy for the 21st Century. In the report, the authors write, quote, In this age of globalization, centralized power, economic inequality, deep demographic shifts, political polarization, pandemics, climate change, and radical disruption in the media and information environments, we face these converging trends in a constitutional democracy that feels to many increasingly unresponsive, non-adaptive, and even antiquated, end quote. That's not the rosiest depiction of life, but it's perhaps pretty accurate for where we're at in 2020. The authors warn that American democracy is increasingly sclerotic towards pressing social, political, and economic issues, so they propose several reforms that could make our democracy and, by extension, lives better. For example, the authors argue that we need to improve civic engagement by investing in civic education. Kevin, can you Tell us about your thoughts on civic engagement. What is it, and why might be investing in civic engagement be important?
0: Sure. So uh, I'm glad that you brought that report up. It's a it's a, a a really great comprehensive report for helping people sort of understand the the current conditions of democracy. And and frankly, the idea in that report of strengthening civic education is probably that. Easiest, most optimistic of the ideas in that report, right? So, if you, you know, look at the other elements of the report, um, you know, some of the recommendations, uh, you know, include, you know, empowering voters and and ensuring the responsiveness of institutions in ways that require sort of massive, sometimes constitutional changes. Also, the idea that um, we're going to um, make it easier for more people to participate in. In democracy, um, is anathema to uh, a minority party that wants to control the sort of majority of government. Right? When you have a minority party um, that is running things um, and they want to maintain their status as a minority party that controls the majority of government, uh, participatory democracy ain't the way to get there. And so you have to actually, you know, sort of. Uh, construct restrictions to that process. Um, and the efforts to try to, um, to have an impact on those restrictions are going to be met with, with all sorts of, of you know, constraints and, and battles, right? So the idea that um, we ought to strengthen civic education, I think, is actually one of the easier ideas uh, in that report. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's easy, nor does it mean that we have um, a clear construct of what civic education is. Um, so you asked you asked a couple of questions, Jason. One was you know what is civic engagement um, and two you know what does civic education look like nowadays? Um, on that second question it's it's widely variable. Um, actually there there is you know policy in New York State that requires every student who graduates from a, a public high school in New York to have taken a course called participation in government so, there's some civic education there at least. But of course, civic education spans, you know, much more than the school, um, and it spans much more than a half-year course uh, as a senior. Um, and so civic engagement is way more than that. Then civic education should be way more than that, too, right? So civic education sometimes is structures and functions of government. You know, you got your bicameral legislature and your Uh, you know, three branches of government and how a bill becomes a law, you know, a la uh, Schoolhouse Rock. Um, But then you've also got, you know, kinds of civic education that are are really fundamentally about affecting the local community in which you live. And so teaching kids how to speak passionately about issues, local issues, personal issues that are important to them, um, and to be able to sort of You know, understand how power works uh, at local, state, and national levels, and to actually collaborate with people who hold power to make changes relative to the issues that they care about. Um, And so there's a lot of different kinds of civic education. Um, And I would say, too, that, you know, civic education isn't necessarily just the formal curriculum of civic education or political education or participation in government. Civic education is what happens when at the elementary level, for example, teachers or administrators treat some kids differently than others. And kids recognize that some are being treated differently than others and decide they either want to speak about it or they don't want to speak about it. Or they, they feel like this person is somebody that they, they, trust that they could talk to or not. Um, And so I mean, that's kind of an informal example of civic education. Um, But civic mindedness, friend and colleague of mine uh, in Virginia, who who does research on civic mindedness, uh, Jennifer Hover talks about how civic mindedness is forged among young children at very early ages around things like, you know, whether it's fair for Uh, Students with disabilities to be treated one way or another, or what should happen when somebody's bullying somebody else in a way that sort of attacks who that kid is or who their family is or what have you. Um, So, civic education nowadays is diffuse, Um, it's sometimes formal and sometimes informal, and it happens all over the place from the earliest ages and preschool all the way up through. You know high school and college and and beyond and so one of the fundamental questions is you know what ought it look like in all of those different spaces right Uh, for all of those different kids toward what ends and i guess the toward what ends gets to your other question which is you know what is civic engagement and i think the easiest way to sort of think about what civic engagement is is the fact that you know we have to live in a society with with each other You know, a political society where power exists, and different kinds of people want different things. Either those things are oppositional; some people want totally different things than other people want, um, or there aren't enough resources to give every everyone exactly what they want when they want or need it. And so we have to get political to address that, right? And so civic engagement is, you know, the process by which people decide to participate in any number of ways uh, in that political in that political process.
1: Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. We're talking about civic engagement with Kevin Maywison, an associate professor and coordinator of the Social Studies Education Program at the University of Rochester's Warner School of Education. Kevin, you were just talking about what civic engagement is what are some strategies that uh, we as, as people in the society or particularly young people, because I know that's who you work with mainly in study, what are some strategies that we use to make sense of our politics?
0: Sure, so um, in some of the, the research that I've done over the last couple of years, um, one strategy that I think um, is really potentially very fruitful is to engage um, in what I would call metapolitics, or what other people not just me but what folks might call metapolitics alongside the politics um, which is when we engage in politics we're talking about you know sort of controversial public issues and, and and as I mentioned those issues could be local for example zoning should we have zoning what should zoning look like in the Rochester area for example which is one of the most Socioeconomically and racially segregated regions in the country. What should we do about schooling um, in this area? Um, you know, there there are conversations happening um, between folks who think that we ought to have countywide school systems where we have uh, greater distribution um, socioeconomically and racially of students across the county versus people who. You know, prefer things to be in districts that perpetuate that socioeconomic and racial segregation, right? So it could be local issues, um, or it could be you know national issues, as I mentioned, immigration policy, or you know how to strengthen democratic institutions, or what have you. So these are the political issues that we talk about, right? But what doesn't happen in in political or, or civic education, oftentimes, is that sort of metapolitical discussion. In other words, how do we do politics together, like it's great to do the politics, but how do we and how ought we do politics together, how should we negotiate or navigate things like political identity and partisanship and ideology, what do those things even mean. You know, so, you know, you might ask a, a, a student, you know, what's your position on X, Y or Z political issue? And, and, and they could tell you for a little bit. And then you say, what's your ideology on that? And, and they'd be like, I'm not sure what you mean. So the fact that we don't have a lot of conversations about that sort of metapolitics, I think, is problematic. And I think we need to do it more. So to give you an example of a way in which um, I've worked with regional educators to do that, um, I've gone into a couple of schools and taught units of study around sort of the, the the big question or the big idea: Are are we as citizens open are open-minded citizens mythological figures or mythological creatures? Right, that's sort of the big question: Are open-minded citizens mythological figures or, or mythological creatures? Which is kind of an, in, an an intriguing question, right? Because we all imagine ourselves to be sort of politically open-minded, but we have Commitments to particular things that maybe make us less open-minded than we think, and so that's kind of an open question. And and then we do a, a series of lessons around, you know, are we rational political actors, and what does that mean? Um, are we tolerant? Are we politically tolerant? And what is political tolerance anyway? And then you know, under what circumstances do we change our minds about politics? And what does it mean to actually change your mind about politics? Um, and so if we address those kinds of questions alongside, you know, the stuff related to the political issues themselves, I think we're gonna do better at um, helping people understand how politics works and and helping people understand how political engagement works. Um, Now, some of that stuff like, you know, political ideology and, um, you know, partisanship, you know, that, that's somewhat highfalutin language, but um, so, so the question then comes up, well, what do you do uh, with younger kids with regard to that stuff? Well, younger kids understand some of the fundamental concepts that are in those ideas? So for example, younger kids understand that, you know, if you've got two teams that are playing against each other, right? And the, the objective of playing against each other is to win and for the other team to lose, right, that tends to make us act a little bit differently than if we have people who are sort of on the same team looking at a problem and trying to solve the problem. So let's imagine that we're all on the same team trying to build something, and the objective is this thing that we're going to build needs to work. How do we behave differently if we're in a situation like that than if we're you know, on a sports team, and the objective is to beat the other sports team? Like, how how do we treat people differently in those circumstances, right? And so, you know, kids can understand those kinds of things. Consequently, there are opportunities to sort of help kids understand the meta-politics alongside the politics. Um, And I think that by doing that, um, we can actually probably do politics a little bit better.
1: You're speaking uh, about things that are perhaps normative, meaning we as a society have to collectively, hopefully collectively, decide what uh, we want to have happen. And so, you know, uh, when you're using that example of people being on a team and working together to accomplish a thing, I think uh, perhaps a big problem right now in 2020 is that we aren't able to Potentially agree upon the thing that we're trying to, to build. So, how can we get on the same team, anyways? Um, do you have any sort of response to, it? like, how do you how do you get either students to to recognize that metapolitically or how would we address the fact that perhaps in our politics nowadays uh, we can't even get to agree on the same thing that we're trying to work towards?
0: Yeah, I think that's a really um, a really excellent question. Um, how do you help students understand what those things could look like? I think is, is a big question because I think one of the, one of the things that people see, um, that kids see in politics or political discourse is that the thing that seems to unify people is seeing the other side lose, which is I think a, a really big problem. And actually um, there's, a, there's an excellent book um, that I would recommend everybody grab and read, it's um, by a political scientist at Maryland, um, Liliana Mason, it's called Uncivil Agreement. Um, and it's a, it's an excellent book and a really approachable book for both political scientists and the, and the, you know, the general public who are not political scientists. But um, she talks about in that book, the importance of um, superordinate goals and how we can actually put those superordinate goals out in, in front as priorities. The challenge of course is that like there are some things that you'd think are superordinate goals that it turns out may not necessarily be superordinate goals. So one reason that I was especially surprised by and I think a lot of people were surprised by the last election cycle is that we would assume that the preservation of you know participatory democracy through voting as a way of of electing leaders would be a superordinate goal that we all could potentially rally around. And the extent to which there was a sort of a, a contingent of the population that are willing to toss that um, in order to see a particular side win, I think was really shocking to a lot of people and, and, and was a, a considerable wake up call, right? I mean, I, as, as part of the work that I do, you know, I, I follow a lot of political scientists on Twitter Um, And people ask, you know, people ask political scientists, like, what are we supposed to make out of all of this? And they say, look, we are trying to figure that out ourselves. Um, And so it's a really, really sort of anxious and uncertain time. Um, But I think one of the things that um, comes out in in that book that I mentioned in in Uncivil Agreement is that um, when people are politically activated, by prejudice and misinformation and a desire to destroy what they perceive to be the other side to be the outcomes are just negative like you're not going to get positive outcomes from that people are are generally not responsive to new conditions or new information that comes out uh, because it's irrelevant um you know like for example um, information regarding how we should protect ourselves and each other during a pandemic. You'd think that that would be a superordinate goal. You'd think that that information would be meaningful and it is meaningful to some people and not others. Um, so when you know people are politically activated by prejudice and misinformation and a desire to destroy the other side, there's really no imperative to try to understand and solve you know, what we might consider to be Local, regional, or national superordinate goals, and, and therefore, you know, you don't necessarily need to pay attention to them um, because, you know, all you really want is for the other side to lose. And so, um, you know, consequently, I think that um, schools are a really important institution for establishing that idea as a thing that, you know, we ought to potentially. Rally around, like the idea of superordinate goals, um, the idea that we want to make our communities safer rather than less safe. Well, how do you do that? The idea that you know um, participatory democracy is still—I mean, I don't. Maybe this is Pollyannish at this point, right? But participatory democracy is still the best way to make sure that all of the different people out there are represented in the political system. You know that that where, where decisions are made, you know, on their behalves. Right. Um, So I guess this is sort of a long circuitous way of, of answering your question, Jason, by saying, man, it's tough. Like, I don't (laughs) know. And I'm hoping that uh, a robust, you know, civic education within a robust public education system is still potentially a pathway to doing that.
1: Well, if you're just joining us, you're tuned in to Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. We're talking with Dr. Kevin Maywison, an associate professor and coordinator of the Social Studies Education Program at the University of Rochester's Warner School of Education about civic engagement. Kevin, uh, hopefully we've debunked by now the idea that civic engagement is just like people who go to vote. Obviously, civic engagement means a lot more than that. Uh, However, you know, this year, well, let me back up and say that in American politics, I guess there's been comparisons drawn to say, uh, our voter turnout tends to be pretty low, people aren't as engaged as they could be in in the electoral voting process. Uh, This year, I think we saw the total most number of votes ever cast in an American election. And then even like as a percentage of the the population, I think it was the most cast in, in maybe 100 years. So on one hand, uh, it's exciting to see increased turnout in the electoral process, I suppose. On the other hand, uh, I'm personally discomforted to see you know, civic engagement manifest as um, maybe anti-vaccination rallies or, you know, last week from from the date of the show airing, there was protests in Washington, D.C. that devolved into four people being stabbed, um, you know, so like civic engagement sort of seems shiny and good, but also I'm sort of sensing that it, it's not always inherently perhaps positive. Um, so I, I, I'm not sure what my specific question is, but yay, we had higher voter turnout this year, but at the same time, there's a lot of sort of, um, worrying things happening as well. Uh, do you have a comment on like, whether or not there can be productive or perhaps destructive civic engagement?
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh, I think you, uh, the point that you made is an, is an excellent point, um, is that there is, there is such a thing as destructive, uh, political engagement, right? Um, political engagement because, um you know, we're passionate about hating somebody or something or some idea um or uh some sort of partisan position um you know is problematic. Um, you know, for, for many of the reasons I, I just mentioned in terms of there not being an imperative to understand and try to solve problems. Um You know, I'm thinking of, you know, a meme that was bouncing around the interwebs, um, you know, uh, I think it was early on in the election season of of a couple of dudes at a Trump rally with a t-shirt that said, you know, I'd rather be Russian than a Democrat, um, which I think is an example of how sort of negative partisanship really, um, you know, problematically colors what we consider to be important aims for politics. Right. And so, so, you know, I, I, I come from a small town um, and that small town, um, you know, has a lot of sort of, you know, rural Trump voters and so on and so forth. So, you know, I see sort of in the social medias um, some of the things that folks, you know, are posting regarding, um, you know, stopping the steal and, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff right now. And, and I responded to one of them, like, like, what is your, you know, this is, this is a legitimate question. And I don't understand, I don't, I don't expect you to, you know, engage in Facebook, uh, like a, an erudite Facebook, uh, conversation about politics is that's just not what happens in that space, right? Let's be real about what happens there. But I said, like, what is your conception of the public good? Like, what, what do you want to come of this in terms of, you know, sort of upshots that you think are potentially good for everybody. You know, and his response was sort of a off the cuff freedomy kind of thing, um, you know, but at the same time, like, I, I think it's, it's important that, um, that our politics are grounded in some conception of there being a public good served by our politics. And, and if that doesn't exist, or you know if it's more public harm than public good, I think we got some questions to address. There's uh, another another book that I, I really enjoyed. Um, you know I mentioned Liliana Mason's book um, is by um, there, uh, a researcher at Syracuse. Um, Shana gadarian is her name and Bethany Albertson. It's called Anxious Politics, um, and this is a, another response to your question um, that there is destructive engagement in in their book Anxious Politics they show us that political elites can exploit people's tendencies to be really anxious about politics and political outcomes. So if people are afraid or if people are fearful or if people are anxious about what the other side is going to do to them, then they can much more easily be exploited and pressed to do things or support things that they might not otherwise support if those elites weren't capitalizing on their anxieties. So folks get politically engaged because they're afraid of how the elites that they trust are representing the alternatives that are presented by the other side. And that's a problem. I mean, as we've seen with sort of Trumpism, like those elites play their followers anxieties really well and they may have legitimate anxieties. I live in a place where economic growth has stagnated or fallen apart. I am not like the, what I would consider to be an important safety net does not exist here. Or there is a a drug epidemic that we can't get our hands on and it's killing our friends and family members and community members, or it could be something again, related to a pandemic, right? So they may have legitimate anxieties, but they're played on in ways that lead to sort of illegitimate ends. For example, Threatening violence to people who might point out the social and the cultural and the political and ethical failures of those elites, right? So, I mean, like, how many how many times have we seen people who are critical of Trump and the Trump administration threatened with violence, either sort of overtly or subtly, right? So, you know, I think that that is an example of destructive engagement, um, and and I think that we in 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 education and political education, need to acknowledge that destructive engagement and productive engagement are real; that they're things, and that we're not actually going to solve many problems related to those things by telling kids, you know, the legislature is composed of, you know, a Senate and a House, and you know, all that kind of like that stuff's important. But how people do politics. Is fundamentally important, and we generally ignore that in political education, and we need to stop doing that. So, where do you
1: see, just out of curiosity, where do you see those questions actually coming up, or do you see them coming up of how we do politics, if not in school?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, sometimes you see them bubble up in conversations that happen in social media outlets. Um, sometimes you see, you know, people sort of doing metapolitics uh, by talking about on television or, you know, in other media outlets, what people are, are doing relative to other people or how people are responding to other people or what have you. Sometimes they come up in, you know, sort of person to dep- like informal face-to-face conversations among, friends and relatives and all that kind of stuff. And sometimes they don't come up at all. I mean, I think one of the reasons why, you know, there's a a tension or a nervousness around talking to people who have other perspectives is because we don't necessarily know how to do metapolitics alongside politics, right? We don't necessarily know how to say, huh, okay, so I find your position on this issue challenging, but I understand that it comes from sort of ethically, you know, your desire to associate yourself with a group of people that are meaningful to you, that you have a commitment to, right? And so, you know, consequently, like I'm not down with your position, but I also understand, you know, some of its antecedents, right? Some of where it, it comes from or some of the commitments that underlie it you know, how often do you see those conversations? Not very often. And so, you know, the answer to the the question that you asked Mary is, you know, sometimes you see it sort of in the ether of discourse around politics and in social and other media. And sometimes you just don't see it very much. Mm
1: Related to that, we were talking about how we had a, you know, a record uh, number of voters this past year. At the same time, I believe that only 67% of the electorate turned out to vote. And in a recent NPR, Medill, and Ipsos survey, uh, the number one reason why non-voters don't vote is because they don't think that voting matters. Uh, again, I, I want to preface that civic engagement and political engagement need not only manifest as voting, but this is just kind of looking at it through one lens. Now, if if, um, if the majority of non-voters don't vote because they don't think their engagement matters, and Kevin, if you're describing how there might be a somewhat lack of productive political engagement in our society, productive meaning um, we are working towards some sort of definition of the common good then I guess, is polit- like the question is, is even modern politics sort of a vehicle for productive change in society? Or are there like other vehicles that, that we might go to or need to go to to actually have productive change?
0: Sure. I mean, I think I would go back to the idea that, you know, we have to live in a society with each other. And we have to figure out if we're going to live in a society. I mean, unless- were the sorts of folks who decide we're going to remove ourselves from that, which we can't all, it's not gonna happen, right? I mean, let's be realistic. We have to live in society, in a society with each other. And so what other means are there aside from what you would consider to be politi- I, political means? I see politics as being very broadly defined as determining uh, how to interact with others when power has to be exercised in some way to make decisions. It doesn't. It applies to all sorts of different things, as as I've mentioned. You know, how do how do you address your neighbor who puts a sign in the yard that says, you know, Trump, no more bull, cry more libs, um, or you know, um, how like for example, you know, does your tiny village need a twelve person police department? Um, you know, these are these are questions that I think need to people need to, um, people need to ad- engage with others in some ways to address those questions and so I don't see any other way aside from engaging with others around questions um, to address them but um, that doesn't necessarily mean that sort of everything that we do is you know fundamentally deliberative I think one thing um, that's important important to keep in mind is that there are different ways of thinking about democracy and different ways of doing democracy, right? So when people say, um, I'm not going to vote, my, my follow-up question would be, what are you doing with others relative to politics um, or political engagement? You know, they, they may still, you know, mix it up in the social media with people, which is kind of interesting too, because if, if you think about what's your goal there, you know, what's the objective of it, the objective of voting is to put people into positions of power who can support what you need, right? The, the, maybe the objective in mixing it up with people in social media is to try to change somebody's mind. Well, that's not going to happen, right? So maybe that's not really the most effective means of, of engagement either. So I think the, the point that I'm trying to make, I guess, is that there are different kinds of democratic practice. There's deliberative democracy where you're sort of getting together with people who have similar or different views from yours and hearing out all of those different views and trying to sort of reach consensus around a problem, right? You gotta understand the problem, you gotta understand how different people experience that problem and interact with the problem, what ideas they have um, for addressing the problem. Maybe there's compromise, maybe there's consensus building, but it's all sort of grounded in this deliberative project. Well. Some people don't do deliberative projects. Some people say, I don't want deliberation. I don't really care about deliberation. I have a goal. I have something really important that I care about. What groups, or, what groups or institutions are making progress relative to that goal? And how can I align myself with that group to try to also achieve that goal, understanding that there are other groups or factions or what have you, that are actually trying to achieve other kinds of goals. That's a a more sort of agonistic, pluralistic ideal, right? Where, you know, we understand that there are are things out there, political things that people are trying to do, and and people are sort of jockeying for power and trying to do that, those things. and, And we have to align ourselves with who we think is going to be most efficacious in getting those kinds of things done. And it's interesting. So going back to the research study, that I did. I remember one conversation with a, a high school senior in, in one of the schools that I was in, where, you know, she was talking about how, with regard to some political issues, like I don't really have a strong position on them because I don't know that much about them. So, for example, you know, immigration policy, I I'm going to sit there and I'm going to listen and I want to hear other people's perspectives and I, like, I want to have a more informed position on that. But when it comes to a woman's right to choose what to do with her body like I am aligned with this organization and I'm, I'm supporting them and I'm volunteering or what have you because I already know like deliberation is over there. Like I want to actually get these things done. And so there's this interesting tension between, um, and there's a political scientist Diana Matsu who talks about this. There's an interesting tension between the deliberative ideal and participatory democracy, because deliberation sometimes gets in the way of participation, getting things done. And sometimes when people are trying to get things done, like there's not a lot of deliberation involved. They know what they wanna do when they're trying to get it done, right? Voting is one act of political engagement that could be participatory, right? But there's all sorts of other different kinds of participatory and deliberative acts out there that people engage with, I think in in many cases, they engage with it because, A, it's engaging with it sort of reinforces, you know, commitments that they have, or B, because they see that kind of engagement as being potentially consequential.
1: That's a really interesting distinction, our framework for deliberation versus participation, I guess I go back to the question of well what's good, what's better, what's worse as, as long as it's advancing towards the idea of a common good, then one's participation might be fine if it's lacking deliberation, you know maybe someone deliberated to get to the point where they want to then just participate <laughs> or, right. or vice versa you know it's sort of a complex web, but as long as to me it's advancing the idea of a public good uh, that yeah. that feels good to me
0: and another thing that I wanted to mention in regard to that Jason, advancing toward a public good as A deliberative ends, I think there's a a sort of a mythology out there too, um, which we're becoming more cognizant of, that um, deliberation requires giving all sides or all perspectives equal hearing. And I think there's a lot of interesting conversation right now in political education, um, as well as sort of you know, political theory and philosophy about whether or not that's actually the case. I mean, there are some there are some positions out there that you probably don't really wanna give a fair hearing, right, doesn't deserve a fair hearing. And, and the, the sort of flip side of that or, or corollary to that maybe is that, you know, sometimes it's actually fruitless to talk to people who disagree with you. So I think one of the things that happens is, is we think, okay, if we're gonna do deliberative democracy, there needs to be this foundational idea that you should always talk to people who disagree with you and give those positions sort of equal uh, status, and I think that's not right i think I think ideas deserve equitable hearings, they're opportunities to sort of be out there, but once they're out there, they don't deserve necessarily sort of a conception of of equity right and and again, sometimes it's fruitless to talk to people who disagree with you so in in those cases it helps actually and it's it's going to help students like high school kids and like you know people who are in political educational circumstances and it's going to help us as citizens right to to have criteria for determining when it is and when it is not useful to continue talking to people who disagree with us so um so one criterion is really simple our participants in deliberation, open to learning something um, from each other, or is the goal to defend our held positions and basically, you know, own the other side, right? And, and those are, those are things that you can, you can kind of suss out in conversation with people or ask explicitly, right? You know, one indicator of that criterion is who asks what kinds of questions, and are those questions good questions? So when you're engaged in political discourse with somebody, what kinds of questions are they asking, and what kinds of questions are you asking? And are those do those events that you're 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 open to learning something, right? Um, some other criteria that I think are are important, you know, is there genuineness or authenticity in what the others sort of foundations for interacting seem to be? So so another example um, from you know that sort of facebook discourse that i was mentioning before is is you you'll see somebody say you know i'm trying to learn and i'm trying to hear all sides you know i think you know the purpose of of asking this question here is to just have a conversation and see what happens on you know out of one side of their mouth and then out of the other side of the mouth they'll they'll post something like why does the mainstream media keep censoring the truth that the election was stolen by the demon rats you know like that sort (laughs) of thing like that's a that's that's not That's a dis, it's disingenuous, right? Mm -hmm. So that's a criterion, right? Is, is this a a genuine or a disingenuous situation? Ergo, should I continue? Relatedly is the discourse civil. That matters. People generally don't learn much from people who insult them. And so consequently, um, if learning matters, then civility also has to matter. And then does political engagement or political discourse um, either surface or focus on things that are shared? Like, do we have shared norms of engaging? Like, do we do we all believe that, you know, truth claims are made the same kinds of ways? Like, you have to have considerable evidence to say that something is true. You know, are the underlying morals or ethical values, um, you know, are, are they something that people sort of universally respect and, and then going back to that superordinate goals thing. do we have superordinate goals that we're you know sort of all pointing to? So these are different criteria that we might consider um, when trying to figure out if it's if it's worth it to continue to, to talking to people who disagree with you or if, or if you need to say to yourself, if you are somebody who um, values political engagement, I am wasting my time in this particular deliberative mode. I am going to reallocate my resources elsewhere because we all have limited resources in our lives. And those limited resources include limited political resources, like the ability to actually participate or the resources that we would need to get to know particular issues or particular groups or people in the kind of depth that we would need to know them in order to be efficacious politically, in order to have impact.
1: Well, Kevin, just one more question for you, but just a reminder to folks, if you're tuning in, you're listening to 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. This is Evidence of Design, and we're talking to Kevin Maywison, an associate professor and coordinator of the Social Studies Education Program at the University of Rochester's Warner School of Education. Speaking of education, Kevin, speaking of the work that you do with local youth... Perhaps to end on a positive note, you know, I heard with youth that uh, the younger you are, the more imaginative you are, and that as you grow older, you kind of lose your imaginative capacity. I don't know if that's true or not, but I've heard that. Now, when it comes to politics, I don't want you to lie just to make me feel better, but I want to believe that for some reason, youth will uh, will have greater capacities and tendencies to work more collaboratively to an idea of a common good. And that for whatever reason, we have a lot of curmudgeonly adults who just can't seem to to get it done. Do you have like um, a story or an example or sort of a trend that you see in a positive way that points to uh, youth and our future and having a more productive, inclusive, and egalitarian political life?
0: Well, yes. So, so I will um, optimistically say that young people, as per the research that I've done, um, have uh, a lot more political sophistication than they get credit for. Um, You know, you, you often hear sort of discourse about the youth being, you know, politically simplistic or politically disengaged. Voting, I mean, you know, voting is for real, right? You'll see a lot of people say, I care about politics and they'll engage in sort of passionate political conversations and even activities like they'll sort of, you know, volunteer for an organization or, I mean, you could consider, you know, something as, Simple as you know wearing a BLM t-shirt or something like that, a, a political act, right? So, the, so they'll engage in all sorts of these political acts, you know, and then and then they won't vote. That happens sometimes, right? But but I think one of the things that's that's important to keep in mind is that young people are are actually quite politically sophisticated, can be quite politically sophisticated um, in their understanding of politics and metapolitics. You know, so an example um, that came from the, the research that we did was a conversation among kids about the extent to which trust matters in politics. And kids realize, for example, that you need to develop trust with others who do politics in order to really get to what they would consider to be sort of authentic political discourse and activity, right? Um, with regard to the idea that we, you know, that question that I mentioned before about under what conditions do we change our minds about politics, right? Um, the kids in our study, and I say kids, they were 16, 17, couple 18 year olds. The kids in our study didn't think about that in an especially simplistic way. Like I'm going to switch from one position to another, or I'm going to go from one party to another or what have you. When, when they talked about you know, how people change their minds about politics, they talked about, for example, how we change the ways that we talk about politics with other people, or how we have life experiences, cultural experiences, political experiences that lead us to interpret something that a political elite says or does in a different kind of way, or deciding to be more or less politically tolerant toward some set of ideas based on who we associate ourselves with or based on our own sort of ethical foundations. So I think something that's really hopeful is that kids can, kids can do that kind of metapolitics. We just need to sort of help them do it more effectively so that they can look at what's going on in the political world and, you know, think critically about it. And and I think also one of the things that we learned is that it's not all that difficult to teach kids how our political shortcuts work. That's language that we used a lot in the study was that we all take political shortcuts. So one of the things that we did was we, you know, paired kids together to sort of on the spot talk about any number of political issues you know or policies so you know climate change policy or what have you and you know they realized that you know after a few seconds they would start talking about what they knew you know about the facts and the information and then they would not know stuff anymore and they'd start sort of relying on these shortcuts. And other kids, we'd ask other kids to sort of look in on those conversations in kind of a fishbowl capacity and say, what kinds of shortcuts are they using? How do you use political shortcuts? You know, and they would point out like, oh well, this seems like, you know, they're they have a they have sort of a worldview or a kind of ethics that they're drawing upon. Or, you know, they they said, you know, they they pointed to a a political elite or a partisan position as somebody that they wanted to sort of hitch their wagon to or, you know, um, you know, those sorts of things. They, they talked about, you know, how things affected them or their family. And, and that became sort of a shortcut is like, you know, how does this affect me and my family? So, um, so this idea that we all have political shortcuts, um, that we all use them, I think that's something that kids, you know, can come to understand. Um, and once you have an understanding of how that works, you know, I think you're, you're going to potentially be a more sophisticated um, political actor. Now, what that means for what you actually do politically, you know, whether you, you know, sort of take stands for justice or equity or get engaged in politics more um, or, uh, you know, or vote. Uh, I'm not entirely sure. Um, but I also will go back to, Um, that program out of Chicago that I mentioned, you know, at the beginning of our time together, the Mikva Challenge, one of the things that they are learning um, is that the more kids are encouraged to get involved in um, local political uh, activity that is relevant to them, um, and the more kids are encouraged to develop, you know, relatively uh, sophisticated positions on political issues and to speak those things aloud to others, the more likely it is that they're going to uh, stay involved in politics. Um, and I think you know, staying involved in politics um, is something that we absolutely need. Um, you know, if we're going to uh, you know, go back to the, the report that you mentioned um, at the beginning of the, the show Um, you know, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences Common Purpose Report, like those solutions um, to supporting, you know, the strengthening of democracy just fundamentally require engagement. They do, there's no way to do it without, um, you know, constituents um, demanding things and, um, you know, sort of cultivating democratic um, practices, right? And so I'm hopeful, I'm hopeful about how that can happen based on what I've seen of youth.
1: Well, here's to a better politics, here's to a better understanding of metapolitics and here's to a better uh, understanding of productive civic engagement that includes and is driven towards a conception of the common good. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us on Evidence of Design.
0: Thank you, Jason and Mary. I really appreciate being here. Um, and it was a fun conversation.
1: Dr. Kevin Maywison is an associate professor and coordinator of the Social Studies Education Program at the University of Rochester's Warner School of Education. In 2018 and 2019, he conducted research on teenagers as political thinking in two regional school districts interviewing young adults about their understandings of political identity, ideology, and ethics, and co-teaching a unit to senior level government students on the extents to which American citizens are rational, tolerant, and open-minded about politics. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Evidence of Design on 100.9 FM WXIR in Rochester. You can always stay in touch with us at radioeod at gmail.com, and you can always find all of our past episodes on YouTube or whatever you get your podcasts by searching for our Evidence of Design podcast. Thank you for tuning in to your local grassroots community radio station. Until next time, please be safe out there, continue to wear a mask, continue to practice physical distancing. Be safe, be well, take care, and bye-bye.